Cup of Tea Tales, Adventures in Gipton Wood Crescent, Leeds, Rag and Bone Men, Knife Grinders and Peg Selling Gypsies. We moved to 19 Gipton Wood Crescent when I was younger than seven. I can't remember which year, but it was probably 1959 or 1960. The road was still cobbled in those days, and it was only after we'd been there a while that they came and tarmacked the centre of the road, just leaving cobbles at the gutters on either side. The street was a hill that rose and fell from one side to the other, and number 19 was just about at the summit. The houses were built before there were many cars, and most only had a footpath leading up to them, and ours was no different. All the houses were semi-detached, and ours was divided from the house next door by a narrow row of trees. As we had a car, one of the first tasks for my father was to build a driveway and garage so that it could be brought off the street. Being practical and young, my father went about the job of cutting the trees down and removing the stumps and assorted bushes. This was quite a major task, and years later my mother blamed it for my father's ill health. Once the driveway was cleared, then I remember workmen coming and laying a foundation and building a concrete garage. The garage was made of preformed concrete panels that were bolted together like a construction kit, and the roof was probably asbestos. It was a very solid build and sat on a good concrete pad. They then laid the driveway, and it was a lovely black tarmac with white marble pieces. It looked very grand, and best of all gave me and my brother a lovely smooth surface to play on. The house was well above the street level, so it had a steep incline at first, and then levelled off. Prior to this we had to play in the street, but the drive gave us a new experience. It was great to run toy dinky and matchbox cars down the drive, under the gates and onto the road at a great pace. The drive also became our cricket pitch. We did sometimes play on the road, and we just had to stop play if a car or van appeared, but this wasn't very often. We still got rag and bone men come collecting scrap metal, and if there was any of value, they may have paid a few pennies, but never very much. They came on a cart pulled by an old horse. It would often have a nosebag on, and when nature called left a little deposit of a warm, smelly matter, which meant the cricket had to be abandoned as nobody was willing to remove it. My parents occasionally might collect it with a shovel, as they were under the belief that it would be good for the garden. My wife tells me that her rag and bone men in Stoke-on-Trent used to give goldfishers payment but we got nothing as fancy. This also reminds me that occasionally we would get knife grinders riding up the street. Most I remember came on a bike that had a grinding wheel attachment and they would sharpen your knives and scissors for a small fee. Nowadays I don't know anyone who has knives sharpened unless they do it themselves. You knew when they were there as both had their own cries that echoed down the street. The other occasional visitors would be gypsies. A gypsy woman might knock on the door selling wooden dolly pegs. This created excitement as they had a bad reputation and might put a curse on you if you didn't buy anything. I believe they would also do fortune telling. Mum always seemed to be friendly with them 
and their annual arrival coincided with the fair at Roundy Park or at another local venue. Cricket on the road when the surface had been tarmacked was great. We would set up wickets, usually a cardboard box, and take turns. We needed some of the neighbours' kids to play with us as well-struck balls could shoot all the way down the road. The real problem with playing in the street was the neighbour opposite. Miss Ellis lived directly across from our house and she made it known soon after we moved in that she did not like boys playing in the streets or anywhere near her garden. She seemed very old to us, but maybe that was because everyone seems old when you're a child. Anyway, when the first ball was hit into her garden and my older brother tried to get it, her front door opened and she marched out and told us in no uncertain term that this would be the only time she would give us the ball back. She was true to her word, and apart from lucky sorties when we hoped she was out or not looking and managed to get in and out alive, she would keep any balls that strayed into her domain. She was the ogre of childhood stories, the witch that took little boys and cooked them, or at least she was to us. When I was older, I did cut her grass for a while, and she wasn't quite as scary. I believe she was a piano teacher, but I never had lessons with her. She did want me to sing for her when I was teaching, and she discovered I was in a production of Oliver as Fagin, but somehow I never found the time. After our first encounter, any shot into Miss Ellis's garden was six and out, and it was your responsibility to retrieve the ball. Failure signified the end of the game. The new driveway provided another venue without the same risks. The adjoining house was owned by a more approachable family, the Wins. They had one son, Graham, and he was a bit older than us. The garage door provided a backstop and allowed just two to play. My brother and I could play for quite a time, and as Boycott and Edrich were the cricketers we idolised, playing a dead bat and developing our defensive style was quite important. For bowlers, the run up the steep drive was a challenge, but when releasing the ball on the flat, a fair head of steam could see bouncers thunder into the door. The neighbours never complained about the noise as far as I know, and there were not the same problems retrieving the ball from next door. But we had the rule that if entered on the full, it was six and out. The slip fielder was a tiny gap between ours and next door's garages. The gap was about six inches, and if a ball went in, a long clothes prop or broom could retrieve the ball. Sometimes it was too far in, and one of us, usually me as I was the smallest, had to squeeze into the space and retrieve the ball. It was very tight and it scraped and removed skin and was very claustrophobic. But when your head was in, it was impossible to turn it around and you could only reverse blindly. On one occasion we noticed a quiet mewling sound coming from the gap between the garages and we discovered that a cat had given birth to kittens there. My mum was always very fond of animals and in some ways more than she was of humans and I was sent in to retrieve them. I think my older brother might have tried first, but as I said, he was too big, and so I was given the task. 
The problem was that to grasp the tiny balls of fur, teeth and claws, I had to lower myself in the space so I could reach down to grasp them. This was very difficult, particularly as the kittens weren't too keen on being grabbed. But I finally managed to get the first and make my way out, only to have to repeat the procedure until all were rescued. The rescued cats were placed in a box and fed a saucer of milk before being driven to the PDSA, People's Dispensary for Sick Animals, the vets for rehoming. The driveway was steep enough to be a real challenge for getting the car up and left barely a couple of inches on either side of the car when it was going through the gateposts. The Ford Anglia and later Ford Cortina were tight squeezes. And later, when my mum bought a Fiat 500, that was defeated by the slope and had to be replaced quickly by the trusty and more powerful Morris Minor. My father developed the knack of coming in with surprising speed. At first the curb was a problem and he made wooden wedges to help the wheels get over it but eventually they had the curb lowered to provide a more genteel approach. Our playing space was taken over when the car was in, but we developed a series of games for down the slope. It was a great space to race toy cars, as I mentioned earlier, but when the wooden gutters were replaced with plastic ones, then we used the lengths of wooden gutters for channeling the cars. We had them jump over gaps and then the crashes were brilliant. My older brother had a corgi James Bond car from Goldfinger, a golden Aston Martin DB5. I remember it well as there was a button on the top and when pressed a metal bulletproof panel shot up behind the rear window and another shot the driver out through an ejector seat. It would probably be worth something if he still had it and we hadn't loved it to death. We also practised our tennis against the wall which was a challenge as there was only about three and a half yards of driveway before next door's path. In a previous blog, I've mentioned roller skates and riding them while sitting on a book, but there was also the red metal scooter. These were fairly basic but great fun, but they suffered the same problem as the roller skates, as any stones would tend to make them stop dead in their tracks and throw you over the handlebars. Children now have their BMXs, Hot Wheels, skateboards and electric toys. But I feel it was more fun when your imagination was left to create new games and the world was your oyster. Maybe every generation thinks that. We also played games with neighbours' children and even girls were allowed. We used to play What Time Is It Mr Wolf, Hot Rice, Hide and Seek, Torchlight Hunts when it was dark Riding, scooters, bicycles, roller skating, skipping, hula hoops and many other games took place in the streets. We ventured further afield as we got older and spent hours playing in the Little Woods, known locally as the Fairy Woods, and in Gipton Wood proper. I can't believe they were, but the days always seemed warm and dry. But that must be through a rose-tinted lens of memory. If you've enjoyed my tales, then you might like to know that there are two books available. The first, Cup of Tea Tales, The Early Years, is available on Amazon and as ebook on Kindle. And the second, Another Cup of Tea, The Teenage Years, is also available in both formats.